How many of you got your lights up this weekend? Anybody finish your tree trimming and decoration? Yeah, many of you saw me out there. You guys uh, go by and blow your horn while I'm up on the roof. I appreciate that. That's not very distracting at all. I told someone, I said, I need to get one of those um, like stunt, stuntman bags and hide behind the bush. And sometimes somebody's going to do that. I'm going to just like fake a roll off onto that bag and uh, cause a wreck right out there in the middle of a condo. I just killed the pastor. He fell off his roof. But we got our stuff up and uh, looking forward to, uh, to this holiday season as we kicked off Thanksgiving, moving into Christmas. Uh, it's, a, it's a great time of year. Uh, it's a great joy to be able to preach in that time. Some, some great stories and something that uh, people a little more attuned, are in tune with things uh, of a spiritual nature in this time of year. So I pray that uh, we, will, we will leverage that and uh, pray that the Lord will give us opportunity to share Christ with those who need to hear. Well, as this is Thanksgiving weekend, I began to think and pray about the message uh, here a while back. And, and in doing so, I had a thought. And I don't get a whole lot of those. So I got pretty excited first. I was like, hey, I got a thought here. And the thought was this. I paused and, and was like, what is God thankful for? You ever thought about that yourself? Well, that triggered another thought. So, I mean, that's kind of like a brainstorm for me if I get two in a row within a 10-minute period. So I had another thought, which went along these lines. Well, God doesn't have to be thankful for anything, right? I mean, he knows all things. God controls all things. Uh, he's worthy of every act of obedience and of kindness and, and, of, and of sacrifice that we could give him. God deserves everything. So he doesn't have to be thankful for anything, right? And as I'm kind of fleshing this out in my mind and, and, and jotting some notes on it, it kind of dawned on me that, that, wait a second, that line of thinking is just another example of how we so often, we take God and we mold him into basically a little G God who, who's a lot like us, which basically means that we're worshiping ourselves instead of worshiping God. I mean, just think about it for, for a second. Does God sitting back, looking down on his children, maybe patting his foot saying, that's right, I deserve your service. You owe me that obedience. You owe me that sacrifice. You owe me every gift and every offering, everything that could be given to me. Does that sound like the attitude or the heart or the character of God that we see described in the Bible? I mean, do those two pictures mesh in your mind of who God is? I mean, it definitely sounds like what a prideful human being would say and would think if they were given unlimited authority and control and power, right? I mean, people would say, yeah, that's right. You owe it to me. But that doesn't sound a whole lot like the character or the nature of God that I see described throughout the Bible. And that set me to thinking. I'm, I'm in a full-blown, you know, thought hurricane at this point with all these thoughts that begin rolling about misconceptions that we have about thankfulness and being thankful toward God. And first, I think there's this idea, we, we have this misconception that I deserve service. I deserve that people would do things for me, which is a very self-centered, selfish approach to life. I deserve it. I'm over you or in control or in authority. Therefore, you have to do this for me, and I don't have to say thank you, so I'm not going to. <laughs> But doing that and thinking along those lines, that puts you on one plane at one place and others beneath you. That they have to serve or look to you. Uh, and, and if you're feeling generous, you might express thanksgiving or appreciation for something. But if not, it doesn't matter. I mean, they're inferior. They're beneath you anyway. You know what that is? 
that is rude, that is selfish, that is self-centered. And if you think it's anything like the character of God described in the Bible, you need to reread this book. Because that is not a picture that we see painted of God anywhere in the Bible. But secondly, I think we wrongly believe that only unexpected acts warrant thanksgiving. Some people mistakenly think that the only time you should express thanksgiving is when some, someone does something that you didn't expect or that's out of the ordinary. Therefore, since God knows all things, he's never surprised. Thus, he, he would never have a reason to, to be thankful for anything, right? Or a third misconception that we can have is that a lifestyle of thanksgiving is optional. That a lifestyle of thanksgiving is optional. But I take you to 1 Thessalonians 5 where Paul, as he's wrapping up his book to the Thessalonian church, is giving short, uh, short to-the-point commands as he concludes this letter. And one of the, the things he says is this, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, that's a command. It's not a suggestion. And it's a command to give thanks in all circumstances because, he says, it is the will of God for you. It's God's will that we would be a thankful people, that we would express a lifestyle of thanksgiving. In Philippians 4, he says again, and this is another command for him, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And he follows up that verse by saying, and the peace of God uh, will pervade your heart, a peace that surpasses understanding. You won't even know why you're peaceful, but God's peace will come as a result of you expressing uh, your prayers to God and not being anxious and doing so with thanksgiving. As Shelly and I are teaching our kids to pray, we try to teach them to be thankful prayers. We encourage them to always begin their prayers by expressing thanks to God before they start asking God for anything else. And giving thanks appropriately, which the Bible says should be done in all situations. Uh, And sometimes giving thanks is an act of sacrifice. It's not easy sometimes to, to be thankful for what's taking place in our life or the situations that we find ourselves in. It's not something that comes naturally. It is something that we must learn over time. And we learn that as we depend and as we walk in close relationship with Jesus Christ. So as we think about Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving is rightly expressed when someone does something unexpected. Uh, we may send them a note or call them and say, thank you, I appreciate your generosity, or I thank, you, I thank you for thinking of me in that way. But there are times when we say thanks to affirm a right action or encourage a right or responsible behavior. If I ask one of my children to do something, even if it's one of their chores or something that they know they are supposed to do for themselves on a regular basis, I still say thank you when they complete that task. Now, do I have to do that? I mean, I'm their father and I'm in a position of authority over them and they've been communicated what the expectations are for them to do and not do. And so they they should have done this. But so do I have to say thank you when they complete that task? Well, I think I do. It's polite, it's respectful, and it expresses my appreciation for their obedience, for them doing what they were supposed to do. And not only that, but we should express thankfulness and thanksgiving for right attitudes, for right thoughts, not just actions. So kind of understanding this, can we see what God then might be thankful for? God is thankful when his children do what they're supposed to do. 
God is thankful when his children obey him and do what he spells out in his word for us to do. With that in mind, I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 13, where we're going to see a, a clear command, a very clear instruction that Jesus give to, gives to us as one of those things that we are supposed to do. John, chapter 13, marks the beginning of Jesus' march toward the cross. And in chapter 13, in an act of humility and of service and of love, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, which was a task reserved for the lowest slave in a household, let alone uh, the Lord and teacher, the master that people have been following in Jesus Christ. Well, then Jesus predicted uh, Judas's betrayal, and he dismissed Judas to go and do what Satan had prompted him to do in his heart. But then Jesus began to teach those remaining 11 disciples And these last hours give us some of the final thoughts and final words and teachings of Jesus. And you know, last words can be very important. Sometimes last words are remembered for years, even centuries. Oscar Wilde, uh, whose last words in in the year 1900 when he died were reportedly, either that wallpaper goes or I do. The wallpaper outlasted. Actor Douglas Fairbanks Sr. is remembered as saying just before his death, I've never felt better in my life. Goes to show you, we never know. In 1864, General John Sedgwick, who was a Union commander in the Civil War, uh, told witnesses that he was standing nearby as the, the, uh, the enemy was shooting at him. He said, well, they couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. And he didn't finish his sentence as a stray bullet struck him down. Pancho Villa, uh, you may remember as a, a famous outlaw in the early 1900s, understanding the importance of last words and how a person will go down in infamy and be remembered. Pancho Villa's last words before his death in 1923 were said to be, don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something. You see, last words are very important. And Jesus, unlike these men, knew what was coming. And he had the opportunity to choose his final words. And while John 13 are not the last or very final words of Jesus on the cross or before his ascension, the teachings in these final hours give us some important lessons. And perhaps none are more important than the words found in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now notice, Again, this is a new command, Jesus says. It's not a recommendation. It's not a guideline. Commands aren't open for discussion. We don't vote on those. You do what you're commanded to do if you respect the authority that's giving you the command or if you fear the consequences for not obeying the command. And so Jesus tells his disciples, a new command I give you. Now, we may pause right off the bat and go, no, no, wait a second, wait a second. Aren't we told to love throughout the whole Bible? How can this be a new command? Because we're told to do that over and over again, Old Testament up to this point. How can this be a new command? Well, there are two ways that Jesus in giving this command makes it a new thing for the disciples. First of all, he gives them a new object or a new focus for them to love. 
the disciples had heard Jesus and his teachings already tell them that they were supposed to love God. That's one object that we are to love because he had told them the greatest commandment was to what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. They knew they were supposed to love God. And they followed that up by saying, and the second is, is likened to it, love your neighbor as yourself. So that's a love that's focused on other people. It's a love for those who are distant or who are far from or who are not like you. You may remember someone once tried to trick Jesus and said, well, who is my neighbor? And they asked him this story. And he told the parable of the good Samaritan. And the Jews hated Samaritans. And so the thought of them showing love for this Samaritan uh, was, a, was a new picture for them, that we're to love those that we don't like. We're to love those that we may have a disdain for. And so Jesus says, that's an object of your love. It's to love those who are far from you, who are not like you. But here Jesus gives them another object, a new object for them to love. And it's to love one another. We're to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just tolerate them. There's a difference here. We're to love them, not just tolerate them, not just be polite or cordial, but to love them. And so Jesus changed, the, added this object of love that we're supposed to display from, from God and neighbors uh, who may be at arm's length to those people, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are going to be eternally connected to in the body of Christ. And here's the truth of the matter. This is not news to you. It's often harder to love those who are close to you than who are far from you. I mean, think about it. Who knows the real you? Who sees you on your bad hair days more than anyone else? Who receives your wrath and the blunt of your anger and your frustrations more than anyone else in the world? It's your family members, right? Those who are closest to you. Now, is that fair that the people who are closest to you that you should love the most and care for the most because they are closest to you often get the worst treatment? I'm not seeing any head nods here. I'm catching some elbows here. I see a little bit of this action, not many head nods. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. It's often a lot harder to love those who are close to us than those who are far from us. We can go and we can show them all kinds of love. Oh, it's great and wonderful. And then we're back in the real world and, and it's not as great and wonderful. And we're not as loving as may be perceived. And so this is a tough thing that Jesus is now refocusing and redirecting for his disciples that you are to love one another and it's not always going to be easy we'll talk about that in a few minutes but but he gives them this new object to love but secondly he gives them a new measure of love they have a new measure of love before he had said love your neighbor as what as yourself you know we have enough self-love that we care for ourselves, right? When we get hungry, what do we do? We eat. It's Thanksgiving weekend. We know about eating, all right? When we get hungry, we care enough for ourselves to say, ooh, I got a rumbling in the tumbling. I'm gonna go find something to eat, okay? And so we care enough for ourselves to eat. We care enough for ourselves uh, to, to clothe ourselves. When it's cold outside, we put on jackets and pants and socks and shoes. And, and we care for ourselves that, that we, we provide clothing. We seek shelter when it's cold or when it's rainy or whatever the case may be. We have enough self-love that we look out for ourselves, do we not? So we love our neighbors as ourselves. Well, now Jesus says we are to love not as you love yourself, but as I have loved you. It's not the love like we love ourselves, because here's the thing we can sometimes let ourselves off the hook in loving other people to say, Well, I don't like myself very much today, and I don't feel like I want to show anybody else love whatsoever because 
I'm having a bad day. Nobody knows what's going on with me. And we kind of get self-centered and we don't want to show love. We don't feel like showing love and so we don't show love. And so Jesus says, no, no, it's not about yourself now. You don't love one another as you love yourself because you can excuse yourself. You love one another as I have loved you. Oh, that's a lot harder because that, how, how did Jesus love his disciples? How did Jesus love us? Selflessly, sacrificially, to the point of laying down his life on our behalf? Man, that's a, I don't feel like showing love today. You know what? It doesn't matter what we feel like today. It matters what we reflect as Jesus Christ has done for us that we would demonstrate to other people. And then Jesus goes on and says, if you're doing this, if you're showing love to one another as I have loved you, by this will all men know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Recognize this, church. Our love for one another in this body of believers is an identifying mark of Christians. People will know you are a follower of Jesus Christ by your love for other people. And since the church is made up of believers, of Christians, an identifying mark of the church should be what? That we love other people. When people visit a church, what should they sense above everything else? What should they see in our eyes and feel in our handshakes and our conversations with them? What should be demonstrated by our actions toward others? What should be reflected in our speech as we talk to one another and as we talk about one another? Oh, ah, does that ever happen? Do we bring up people in the church and do we, do we talk about it and people know these persons? And not just the words that you say, what's the tone of voice in which you say those words? People hear those things. And they know what's taking place. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. What should be reflected in our speech? It should be the love of Jesus Christ for one another. Love is used 12 times in the Gospel of John in chapters 1 through 12. In chapters 13, which we're in through 21, it's used 44 times. Do you think God was trying to drive home a point in John's gospel? He was. He was trying to drive a point that we should love one another. Love should be an identifying mark in our life. And the early church got this message. The early church loved one another. So much so that an early church leader named Tertullian wrote uh, and said this, It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. Now, now, people saw believers and they branded, they identified them. They said, you can tell who they are by this one thing. And he goes on and says, they say this. See, they say how they love one another, how they are ready even to die for one another. Love was an identifying mark of the early church. Is it an identifying mark for us and for our church? You see, the greatest gift the body of Christ can give the world is that we would love one another because as we do that, the outside world sees this love and they desire to know more about a Savior who can cause people to show the kind of love they see displayed in our lives and in our church. 
Now, I must confess to you this morning, though, the easy part is telling you that we please God when we show love to one another. The hard part is applying it and doing it in our lives. Because we live in a world and we are part of a church where people aren't perfect. We're not perfect people. This is not a perfect church. People will hurt us. People let us down. They neglect us. They overlook us. Sometimes people fail to meet our expectations. They act selfishly. They don't listen to us. And sometimes that we just don't feel loved or like we're a part of a family. Even in a crowd this size, people can still feel lonely and isolated and unloved. And I would dare to say, I would dare to wager that most of us, at some point in our lives, we go to this imaginary bookshelf in our minds and we pull down this book entitled, Times When I Didn't Feel Loved. And we go through and we flip the pages of this book and they date all the way back to childhood, do they not? Of times that we didn't feel loved. Well, do you know what my mom and dad did to me? And we rehearse these things over and over in our mind and we get to this point. There's probably a chapter in there of times that we didn't feel unloved at church even. And we flip through these pages and and we kind of wince at the pain of some of these memories. But strangely enough, as we replay these things over and over in our mind, they kind of bring a warming sensation to us. There's almost a, a comfort or a sense of security in our hearts. Because as we rehearse these stories and we flip through these pages, they remind us that we're justified in feeling the way that we feel. In behaving the way that we behave and in saying some of the things that we say. And oddly enough, the presence of these feelings kind of calms us. You know, it's like an addiction that that people have. They know it's not healthy. They know it's not good for them to have this habit or this addiction. Yet if they they neglect it and they don't go to it soon enough that their body begins to do strange things and that they just, just, they're drawn to, they've got to get back to this thing that's the addiction in their life. And as soon as they give into and and, and come to that addiction, there's this release, this, ah, this calming sensation for them. And, And we do this with these times in our life when we nurse, when we feel unloved, when we felt unloved by other people. And then we come and we sit in a service and we hear this teaching on loving other people as Christ has loved us and realizing that means we need to forgive, that we need to reconcile, that there need to be some changes in our lives. And we get just a little bit uncomfortable thinking about what this is going to mean because we recognize that that book that we have in our mind, God wants us to take that book and tear some of those pages out and totally destroy them and get rid of them. And begin to write pages of forgiveness and of healing and restoration in a new book. And it's hard to let go of these things because it may mean that we have to look in the mirror at ourselves and say, you know, maybe I was a little bit more at fault than that than than I've cared to admit for all these years. Maybe I need to go and apologize to someone for my actions, for my words, for my neglect in some way. Maybe I need to forgive, maybe not for the benefit of the other person, but for the benefit of myself. I forget who it was, but they made this statement. They said that harboring unforgiveness in our heart and in our spirit is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. We don't forgive for the benefit of the other person. We forgive for healing and restoration and cleansing in our lives. 
Because maybe you do have a good reason to be angry, a good reason to be upset. But what does the Bible call you to do? It calls you to forgive. It calls you to seek restoration and healing. It doesn't mean you sweep things under the rug. Maybe you need to go and work through a situation. I'm not saying loving one another is easy. I'm not trying to pretend or imply that it is. And I'm not even saying that, that I'm accomplished or, or a pro at doing this as well. I'm just showing you what God's word says and his instruction so that we can, see, we can see and experience God's blessings if we would obey these things. But I can tell you a couple more things. If we're going to love like Jesus has loved us, we need to do a couple of things. First off, here's what we need to do. We need to see people as Jesus sees them. We need to see people as Jesus sees them. When he looked at people, what do you think Jesus felt or what he thought? Well, the Bible gives us insight in a couple of occasions, and oftentimes it tells us that Jesus had compassion upon people when he looked at them. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, it says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Matthew 14, 14, he had compassion on them and he healed their sick. The other references in there revealed that this, this compassion, this mercy that Jesus had upon people when he saw, when he looked at them. When you look at people, what do you think? What do you see? What do you feel when you see those individuals? Maybe if it's people like you, there's positive feelings and you're okay. Yeah, they're, they're a person like me. I can, I'm okay with that. But what about those who aren't like you? What about people who aren't like you? Do you steer clear of them or worse? Do you speak or act in ungodly ways toward them or about them? Take those thoughts and those feelings captive, the Bible says. We're to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Take it captive and try to look at them through the eyes of Jesus. He had compassion on the lame and the sick and the prostitutes and the adulterers. And he reached out to minister to them instead of rebuking or or, or scoffing or berating them. You see, this is a heart issue. And we need to develop the heart of Jesus. It's a heart issue. And each of us needs to look in our own heart and ask God to help us see how we are loving one another. Secondly, to love people like Jesus loved them, you need to let love move you to action. Let love move you to action. So when you see them and you have this love, it's like, oh, oh, I love people. Our love should move us to action, to do something about that. I read about a lady named Adele Gabery, whose lawn began to grow out of control. Her lawn grew almost hip high, and so her neighbors, frustrated at this eyesore in their neighborhood and their community, hired a teenager to come and to mow her lawn for her. One winter, her pipes froze, and they burst, and so the neighbors called the water company, and the water company came and turned the water off because it was leaking out into the neighborhood and pouring into the streets. Finally, Miss Gabery's mail began to spill out the front door onto her porch, and the neighbors finally called the police. But you know what none of those neighbors ever went to do? They never went to knock on her door and see if she was okay or see what was going on. And so the police came and they forcefully entered her her home. And they found this 73-year-old woman's skeleton lying on a pile of trash where she had fallen. And they estimate that she may have died as many as four years prior. 
Eileen Dugan uh, was one of the neighbors. She said her house was less, less than 20 feet away, and she said this, It's not really a friendly neighborhood, you think? She said, I'm as much to blame as anyone. She was alone and needed someone to talk to, but I was working two jobs and I was sick of her coming over at all hours. Eventually, I just stopped answering the door. You know, as I read this, I wondered and thought, were any of her neighbors Christians to have gone four years and seen all these signs and never gone over to inquire? That sad but true story, look her name up on the internet, speaks for itself. That love should move us to action, not just about talk. It's about what we do, how we show and demonstrate our love. But let me add what God has to say about this subject from his word. James 2 says this, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And John adds in 1 John 4, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So if we're going to love others... Like Jesus commands us to do, we need to let our love move us and, and be put into action. But finally, if we're going to love others like Jesus wants us to do, we need to unite and we need to reconcile. We need to unite and we need to reconcile as brothers and sisters in Christ in the body of believers. You see, stressed and strained relationships, first off, they paralyze. They, they, they just kind of get frozen. They kind of get stuck when they're stressed and when they're strained. Then they begin to deteriorate and, and waste away. And then finally, those relationships, they die because there's no time. There's no attention. They paralyze. They waste away. And then they die. Those relationships sever because of the stress and the strain. But if we love one another as Jesus loved us, we must reach out in reconciliation. We've got to reach out to our brothers and sisters in Christ in love and forgiveness to those who are wronging us or who have wronged us. And we need to reconcile and restore that relationship through the power of Christ. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, his prayer was that they would be encouraged in heart and united in love. Encouraged in heart and united in love. And you see, unity, for us to be unified, it requires reconciliation. And reconciliation cannot happen without conversation. It can't happen unless we talk, unless we discuss what the issues are, the hurts and the frustrations. Because if we don't talk about them, they don't go away. They just build and build uh, and are under pressure until they burst. And oftentimes that burst and that eruption creates more damage than if we had just dealt with the situation. No matter how painful, no matter how difficult, I sometimes think that the hardest part of confrontation and walking through these things is the first sentence. It's like, how do, how do I say this? I mean, how am I going to bring this up? And how am I going to phrase it in a way it's not going to hurt? You can't. It's going to hurt. It's not going to be pleasant. It's not going to be fun. But you've got to do it so the healing process can begin. 
Have you ever had like a hangnail or some kind of a wound on your body that's gotten infected and it gets red and it boils and it's painful to the touch and you just can't stand it? You've got to open that wound so that healing processing and get that infection, that decay out of there. It's not fun. It hurts to to make that initial uh, incision or that initial hole, but that's the beginning of the healing process. And in reconciliation, we've got to talk through these things. So no matter how difficult, no matter how hard, open the door and talk through the situation because it's not going to go away if you just stick your head in the sand. That's not easy, but it's the truth. And if we ever hope to love one another as Jesus has commanded us, then we've got to learn to keep short accounts with one another. We've got to deal with conflict and relational disharmony. Jesus said this is so important in our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. He said, if you come to the altar and you remember that someone has something against you, then you need to leave your gift there at the altar. You need to go. You need to reconcile with that person, then come back and and finish offering your gift. Your worship will be interrupted. Your worship will be hindered if there are unreconciled uh, conflicts and relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It is that important that you can't worship fully and be in a right relationship with God unless you reconcile and heal and restore relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a big deal, friends, and we must take it seriously. And all of this starts with the love of God in our lives, and it ends with the love of God being displayed through us and being a picture of how it heals and restores the relationship, and everywhere in the process, we should be guided, directed, and influenced by the love of God as well. And here's the thing. You may be able to fool all of the people some of the time, You maybe can fool some of the people all of the time, but you know what? You can't fool God anytime. He knows. He can see your heart. He knows what's taking place. And God's hand of blessing will be removed, and his level of activity will diminish in your life and in our church if we don't mature and grow and learn to love one another and deal with things that destroy and hinder our relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, how do we do that? How do we have this unity, this reconciliation, this bond in the body of Christ? Everyone has to do his or her part. And I close with this story. Herman Ostry was a man in Bruno, Nebraska, who built a barn. He built a barn big enough to take care of his farming needs for for several years into the future. But as soon as his barn was completed, he realized he had a problem. Every time it rained, there was a nearby creek that would flood uh, his barn. And so you can't use a barn if it's going to flood uh, there in the bottom every time you get, get, get a, a little bit of rainfall. So he had this brand new barn that he couldn't use because it was in the floodplain. Well, his son was an engineer, and as they were talking about the issue, uh, his son said, Dad, you need to just move the thing. He said, yeah, right, how am I going to move a 17,000-pound barn? His son, being an engineer came and looked things out and made some measurements and said, Dad, I think we could handle this if we were to build. And his son engineered this steel frame that went all through the inside of his barn had handles sticking out the outside. There were 344 handles sticking out all around this barn. Well, the people in the city heard what was going on, and they got all excited about this, and they were having a big uh, centennial-type celebration. And as part of the town's festival, they came out to Mr. Ostry's house, and they got 344 people on the handles, and they all practiced. And you know what? They could lift that barn. 
Well, in preparation, he had 145 feet away, a little higher up the hill, laid a foundation. And so 344 people from this town picked up that barn, marched it 145 feet up the hill, turned it around, and sat it down on its new foundation. Everybody working together, doing his and her part. And friends, we need to lift, we need to carry, and we need to place Mount Pleasant Baptist Church securely on the foundation of God's love. And it takes every single person doing his or her part for us to be able to accomplish that task. It's kind of like this three-legged stool, three-legged adjustable stool you got here. It's got to have three legs. Four is fine, but two legs, this thing is not going to stand. But three legs gives us security, stability. We can sit, we can stand, we can do a lot of things on that three-legged stool. The three legs of love for us as a church, for us as individuals and us as a church, that we love God, that we love each other. And we love lost people. When we love in those ways, we'll be firm, secure in Jesus Christ. And God will continue to build and bless his church because we're displaying the love that he's commanded and called each of us to love and show to other people. So as we come to our time of invitation this morning, a couple of things. First of all, you need to recognize you can't show the kind of love we've talked about this morning apart from the love of Jesus Christ in your own life. So if you've never given your heart and your life to him and you've received God's love, you've been forgiven of your wrongs and your disobedience to God, then our pastors are available this morning. We'd love to talk with you about how you can become one of God's children. Secondly, you can't love God like you should with strained relationships with other people. So if there's restoration, there's healing, there's situations that you need to deal with, then I pray today that God would give you the courage and the strength and you would step out in obedience and and seek reconciliation in those relationships, whatever they may be. And you can't love God or other people like you should if you don't forgive. And so maybe today your first step is for you uh, to offer forgiveness to someone that may have not asked for it. They may have not even known there's any wrong taking place in your life. But maybe today for your own healing, for your own growth in your spiritual walk with God, maybe you need to offer forgiveness to another person. So I invite you today to respond in that way. But finally, I would ask you today as a body of believers to pray for reconciliation and for healing, for unity, and an ever-increasing environment of love in our church. Don't ever stop praying that we would be unified. Don't ever stop praying for love to be displayed to one another and to people who come in contact with our church. It It should be an identifying mark in our lives and in our church as a whole. So I ask you to pray for us. And maybe you want to come to the altar and do that, or you can do it in your seat. But pray that God would help us be a place of of unity and of restoration and reconciliation and a place that displays love and shows love to all people.